Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is John Niven, one of the greatest comic novelists of his generation. He's the author of 10 books, including Kill Your Friends, The Amateurs, Straight White Male and The Fuck It List. While his books are always laugh out loud funny, they also tackle deep and dark issues around mental health, particularly men. And he covers themes such as male friendship, addiction, ageing, regret and guilt. In 2010... John's brother Gary died by suicide. He's recently finished writing a memoir about his relationship with Gary and the circumstances that surrounded his death, which will be out next year. I was privileged to speak to John about this stuff and much more. I found him as entertaining, insightful and honest as I would expect. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. But a word of warning, there is obviously a lot of discussion about suicide in this episode, which some people might find disturbing. If you are struggling at the moment please do reach out for help. The Samaritans are on 116123 and the call is free. Anyway, here's John. John Niven, welcome to The Reset. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I guess uh, I'm always interested to start out by asking people, you know, what, what, were, what was it like for you in childhood growing up and what was... What was the attitude in your sort of family and, and people that surround you towards talking and about emotions and feelings and all that sort of stuff? Uh, well, a sort of working class Scottish childhood in the 1970s. So uh, none of that stuff was ever much on the table, you know? Yeah. Um, people didn't. It was only um, much later in life... Um, when my brother got into real difficulties, mental health-wise, that um, I kind of wished we had some more of the vocabulary to have talked about those things along mm. the way, you know? Look, yeah. I, I, I mean, for those who don't know, uh, my brother um, killed himself at the age of 42 uh, which, in 2010. So it was 12, 13 years ago now. And, and like a lot of people 
uh, I, I became an, an expert on the subject of suicide and male mental health mm. after the fact, you know, when the information was no longer of use to me, if you will, in terms of my brother, you know. So um, I wish we'd kind of had more... Um, I wish I wish I had had when I was younger more of the terms of being able to talk about these kind of things, you know. Uh, you know, for instance, my brother, when it happened, he was he was male, he was single, he was living on his own, he was in his early forties, he was unemployed, he was having financial problems, he historically had substance abuse problems, health problems. Um, recently separated. It was just like, you know, it was almost comic the degree to which red lights were flashing across the board. Mm. Um, but I, I didn't quite know that at the time, you know. Because he it, he wouldn't have shared the details with you? Not, not too much. I mean, there were, there was a very specific thing in my brother's case Um uh, he had a, he, he suffered, as we, we both did, we both suffered from a condition called cluster headaches, which um, came out of the blue for me when I was in my, let me think now, I was just start. I just left the music business to become a writer. So it was sort of around the age of 35, 36. I just woke up with this agonising headache one night, like lodged behind my right eyeball. Um, I had fallen asleep and woke up about an hour later with a splintering headache. I mean, the pain was excruciating. And I sort of waited it out, then it just stopped as suddenly as it started. And then I went back to bed, and uh, about an hour and a half later, woken again with the same headache. It started to happen three or four times a night. And after two or three days of this course, um, I went to, on the internet, and then went to see my GP. And being a sort of an educated guy in the southeast of England, I got a proper diagnosis with cluster headache quite quickly. And it suddenly occurred to me, my, you know, I was living in London at that point, and my, my brother was still in Ayrshire. I asked me about 2004 that my mum had been saying to me, my brother had been complaining of migraines for years. And I suddenly realised, I bet he doesn't have migraines. And sure enough, my brother had cluster headache too. But his, cluster headache is very rare. It affects something like 0.1% of the population. But if you, you drill into the research and you find out they're commonly, they used to be called suicide headaches by doctors. Wow. Because women who have them describe it as worse than childbirth, the pain. Um, and Gary it reached the point where a very small, maybe 10 to 15% of that 0.1% become um, chronic sufferers. Mine were episodic, and I had them for a few weeks, and then they went away completely. Came back briefly a few years later, and that's kind of touch wood. I don't even, I don't even like talking about it for fear of, you know, bringing it on. But my brother became chronic, as in he had these headaches every day for months and years without any remission. Right. Uh, and so finally, I managed to get him into the neurology department at Queen's Square in London where he started getting um, proper treatment that did make some headway and, and dealing with it. But, and this ties in, I think, a bigger point about male mental health. Um, 
my brother just wasn't the kind of guy he could really manage running his life in his own. Stuff like keeping on top of his medication or he didn't drive of a car and you had to get, he'd, he'd take oxygen at a certain flow rate through a breathable, a rebreather mask to abate the attacks and they happened. And these tanks were big and heavy and he didn't have a car to get to the, to the pharmacy to have them refilled. And uh, his, him and his girlfriend split up and there's just, I think there's a lot of men, certainly men from that background of a working class Scottish guy who grew up in the 70s. He just didn't have the wherewithal to sort of run a life, to run a house and pay the bills and keep on top of the gas. And just things were sort of gradually spiralling out of control for him. Um, I recognise that. But why do you think that is? I mean, I really recognise that. Like, I know blokes like that who just struggle and that, you know, it's like a vicious circle because your mental health sort of might prevent you from getting on top of the practicalities of your life. And then the chaos that that creates just worsens your mental health. But what is it about blokes of this generation where we, where we saw that background where we struggle to sort, sort shit well, out? I think specifically for my brother, like a lot of his friends, my brother left school at 16 without any qualifications and kind of eventually became a sort of semi-skilled carpenter. And like a lot of these friends, they lived at home with their mum and dad until they were in their mid-20s to late 20s even. And then they then he got engaged and him and his fiance got a house together. Whereas I left home at 18 to go to university. And then I left university in Glasgow and I went to London to work in the music, music industry. You, by dint of living on your own, you know, in student flats, and then you gradually learn how to cobble together a meal and you learn that, you know, you got up, set a direct debit up for that, you know, you kind of learn those rudimentary life skills, you know, I've been forced to deal with it. Whereas Gary, I think, was sort of taken care of by my mum until his late 20s and then by his his girlfriend. Yeah. And, and he never really lived far away from home. He only ever lived a couple of streets away from my mum. So he's the kind of guy that would be taking his washing round in his 30s sort of thing, you know? Yeah. That suddenly when you when they split up and he was, you know, in a house, you know, the myriad of things you have to do in order to run a house, you know? Just, uh, I think that just all gradually got away from him and he slipped sort of further, further into debts and disorganisation, the electricity being cut off and this and that. He just couldn't cope with it, but was too proud to ask for the level of help that he probably needed. Yeah, I was going to say, does did pride play a big part in it? Because that usually is the case in that you feel very ashamed of, of the way you're feeling or whatever, but like pride is such a big sort of obstacle to just reaching mm. out and asking. Yeah, that was definitely the, the work. I mean, there were other factors that, I mean, he, he, my, my brother was a drug dealer in the 90s and he went to prison for three years um, to Barlini, which was like one of the oldest, most decrepit, badly run Victorian jails in the country. Um, and funnily enough, when he got out, I kind of thought this could go one of two ways. It might be a sort of real life of crime from, from now on or he might pull back from it. And he did. That's just when he had he met his fiance and his life for a few years after prison seemed to be seemed to be getting a very good track. Um but I I think there were certain I think the thing you here's the thing that I was sort of wound up doing once we sorted his headaches out and I sort of took the lead on doing that, 
I kind of thought, right, now I'm going to sort out the rest of your life because that's what you do when you're middle-class sort of guardian-reading idiot. I thought, well, we've dealt with the physical stuff. Let's deal with the metaphysical issues. And part of that was he was kind of rudderless. He was working here and there, as I say, as a carpenter, but he didn't really have any focus to his life. And I was trying to say, like, you know, you're still only in your late 30s at that point. What do you want to do? What's what's the game plan kind of thing? And I remember he said, oh, just um, like his dream was maybe to become like a foreman or a building site, like a more senior position in the building trade. And he said, but you need HNDs and things like that. And I said, well, that's not un- undoable. You've got a lot of work experience that will probably count towards credits. You might have to go back to school and do some GCSEs that you never got. I was trying to sort of help him put a plan together to do this, but you could just sense that he, he, it was just an enterprise beyond his grasp to do that, you know? And he was suffering badly from the headaches by that point too. And I, I think there's just a, with the best one in the world. He just, he just wanted to be left alone to play his Xbox and smoke his weed and lie on his sofa and cope with his pain as best he could, you know? Um, and all, all my sort of gung-ho, here's how we jolly well fix this in the world, isn't going to fix that, you know? But, you know, you must have a, a, have had a tremendous sense of helplessness. You do a bit, but and also, well, you know, I'm not, I don't come out of this blameless because you know with a lot of people and I'm writing I'm writing a memoir right now that deals with me and my brother's lives and sort of little points along the way in childhood where the kind of question in the book is how does the black sheep of a family become the black sheep how does it get there you know and there's all sorts of factors of course there's family there's birth order and family dynamic and all these kind of things and there's nature and nurture in there too I'm, I'm sure Sorry, was um, it? Sorry, you might have said this. So I apologise. Was he older or younger than you? He's my younger brother. Um, right, Gary was the middle child. Right. So uh, when we were kids, I was quite a verbal kid. You know, according to family lore, I was talking in complete sentences by nine, ten months, and Gary was much slower to talk. And part of that was the reason I think that I'd speak for him. Which ironically, I'll, my friend pointed out to me, I'm kind of doing that now with this book. Um, I'm still doing it today. Uh but, you know, if we were together in a family situation, somebody asked a question of Gary, I would answer it for him before he could formulate his response. And then when my sister was born, she was the first girl in the family and very young, cute, blonde baby. So suddenly they're the youngest and they're the cutie pie and I'm the oldest. I'm quite verbal and quite bright. And Gary, I think, struggled to define a role for himself within that. And the way Gary gradually defined that role was by being a bit nutty, by being, you know, he wasn't a big guy, but he was the kind of fearless kid who would do the dare, who would do the craziest thing that the other kids wouldn't do, who'd go that bit further. The kind of fearless small kid that gets adopted as a mascot kind of figure by the older gang boys, you know? Yeah. That became Gary's kind of role. Um and as he got into his teens, that got a bit more serious in terms of the guys he was sort of hanging out with. Um, and then, of course, when I say I'm not playing, but the, 
by the time he was really getting into this, when he was 16, 17, I was already gone. I was off to university in Glasgow and then straight to London from there. So maybe at this crucial stage where he was starting to go down this darker path in terms of who he was hanging out with and what he was doing, um, I wasn't around much. I only got involved sort of towards the end. And it was the headaches thing that really bonded that because I'd been through it a little bit. And the thought that he was suffering this chronically was just unbearable to me, you know, because from my own more limited experience with it, I, I did think, I don't know if that's survivable to be a chronic cluster headache sufferer, you know. And my brother had been going to the GP for years with it. But again, coming back to that thing we were just talking about, being a, a working class male, he just didn't have the vocabulary to probably describe his symptoms very well to the doctor. Mm. I'd be like, ah, you know, just fucking my head's bad, doctor. Mm. Just say a head. And he was getting given uh, just big Nurofen for years, which is like, if you know anything about cluster, it's like, you know, the proverbial shooting a pea shooter at an express train. It's just hopeless, you know? Yeah. And he's and also he's living in Ayrshire, which was a you know underprivileged part of the country with a lot of you know a lot of people with mental health issues and chronic unemployment and overworked GPs who just don't have the time to ask the right questions and to really dig into things. So it was you know a perfect storm in some ways for some of my brother. I often wonder if what I should have done was tried to get Gary into some kind of therapy. Um, earlier to hear the, the other thing that I hadn't mentioned that happened at a crucial stage was my dad died um, of cancer quite suddenly and my mum and dad, uh, this was in the early 90s and my mum and dad I was 26 at the time Gary was 24 and my mum and dad hadn't been totally straight with us I think about how bad he was um, and at the time he died, Gary was living this sort of quite... Gary was still living at home in and out of the house, but living... He'd sort of discovered rave in the early 90s and was living this quite sort of rave-tastic, gangsterish lifestyle of, you know, coming in at, you know, dawn or lunchtime from the night before and then sleeping for two days. And then and my dad and him were at loggerheads. They were fighting like bitterly, sometimes physically, in a lot of, you know, harsh angry words and then suddenly dad died mm. and I think that was a colossal blow for Gary I mean, it was, don't get me wrong I was only 26 it's very painful for me too but there wasn't really anything unsaid between me and my dad and you know we we got on you know and mm. you know sure we had our arguments here and there but him and Gary were like you know you probably have to say enemies at the time he died you know because mm. dad was just thinking Gary's life was a waste of space and Gary was just like, fuck you, leave me alone to do what I want to do, you know? Yeah, um, which is what he later thought, you said he later was a bit like that with you when you were trying to help. So A little bit, yeah. Um, he, I mean, it's so clear, I think Gary then was, just after Dad died, it really broke him that, you know, you can't turn the clock back by a minute yeah. and get the chance to say the things you needed to say. So I think that drove him. And also, I've seen this in life generally. I think the death of a parent sort of emboldens you in some ways. For some people, that might be in a good way. It can set you off and look. For me, the path to sort of becoming a novelist and a writer was sort of kick-started a bit by that. 
Mm. Um, it emboldens you. For Gary, it emboldened him in a bad way and that the sort of quasi-criminal life he was on, lifestyle he was beginning to lead at that point, got a lot more serious. And, you know, it was only three years after my dad died that he got arrested for, you know, he walked into a house with 300 ecstasy tablets on him. And this was at a time where that was a, you know, automatic, pretty severe jail sentence, you know? Mm. Um, he... I think what happened to Gary around that time in the early 90s, about the time I started working in the music, in the music industry, is that with he'd never really been that interested in music and then suddenly discovered rave culture and it was a bit of a complete lifestyle, as it was for millions of people at that time. Yeah. Um, lots of people gave up boring jobs to run record labels or promote club nights or to design flyers or to do whatever, you know, it was a, or become DJs, what have you. Gary wanted that world and that lifestyle, but he didn't really have a skill set that would work for any of those things. So people like that, they have to find other ways to take their place at that table. And yeah. for Gary, that, that was selling drugs. So he became a dealer. And um, as we know, that kind of usually only ends in one in a couple of ways. And um, for Gary, it ended in prison, which um, I, I think... I suspect his first sort of dabblings with heroin were in prison. Um, and then that was on off later in his life, partly maybe as a way to deal with the pain of the headaches. Yeah. And um, partly as a way, I think, as for many people that go down the opiates route, just blotting things out, you know? So to, to circle back to trying to answer your question, I wish that at some point, I mean, as I've been write, as I've been writing this book, um, I got access to all his medical records, you know, and I could see all the visits to doctors he made during the 1990s. And a lot of them he's clearly suffering from depression. And he does get referred to a mental health nurse at some point. And uh, the mental health nurse and trying to unravel what's going on with Gary does latch onto this thing that he's filled with this regret and anger about the death of her dad and that he didn't get the chance to make it up with him. But he's frequently prescribed courses of, I think he's, he's prescribed Prozac at one point and another antidepressant, another one. But then he'll miss appointments with the mental health nurse and he'll he'll have stopped taking the medication or he'll have run out of it and not got it refilled. And it's just these kind of people in the margins who are living increasingly chaotic lives. Things like managing the therapy, and the drugs just becomes impossible. And if I have a regret, it's maybe that if I'd been closer to home at that point and I could maybe have got more involved in the... Because the only possible person who was around and close to him was my mum. But I think he did that thing of presenting a more together front from my mum than what was really going on behind yeah. the scenes, you know? Which I'm sure, again, is very common. But when you're processing the whole thing do you you know do you do you sort of conclude that you feel they should have done more or are you uh, what or are you oh, well, I, content I, I, with the fact that what happened happened and you can take yourself out of that it was his life no i always think i should have done more and uh, you know you here's the thing suicide it's kind of like a chernobyl of the soul and that it sets in place this chain reaction with an incredibly powerful half-life 
that goes on for a very long time. It, it's well, forever. It's it's fueled by questions of there's a lot of what ifs mm-hmm. that attach to suicide for for anybody close to it. And I wonder, you know, to give you for instance, he towards the end of his life he was constantly borrowing money from either me or my mum. And it, I mean, never huge amounts, but it was like hundreds of pounds here and there. And uh, I think towards it, I lost the rag with him because he rang up and it'd often be a sort of circumlocutory sort of speech about how, you know, when somebody's trying to tell you they're fucked up but not sounding stupid, there was a lot of that. And he'd ring you up and say, for instance, um, do you know anybody that might want to buy my golf clubs? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I'm going to sell my golf clubs. And I'm like, why are you caught? I'm in London. You're in Scotland. I mean, why? Why not just put? Why not just put them in the paper? He's like, I, I don't know, if, uh, whatever the reason for that was. But of course, what he was saying was, I need to borrow some money. But I had to be dressed up as sort of, you know, and wants to buy my golf clubs. And <laughs> ready to pop the question. The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Of course, I, by that point, I was getting slightly frustrated with him now and then because it was just constant. And I was quite short with him and said, you know, look, if you want some fucking money, just ask for the money. Don't Let's not do this pantomime. You know. And what I should have done was just say, how much do you need? Don't sell your golf clubs. I, I kind of, one part of me agonises over the, because I was doing pretty well by that time. I could just have given him the money. I could have given him, a, I could have put him on a retainer and said, look, let me cover your bills for a while till you get back on your feet. But, you know, my sister pointed out, had you done that, it would have, that wouldn't, that had been enough for a while, and then it would have had to be more. And then she said it would have been a sort of long-form extortion, knowing Gary's doing you. And I'm also aware that, of course, you can't fix these things with just money, you know? Mm. Um, there were deeper issues there but it's difficult not to beat yourself up thinking if I'd been a bit more generous, if I'd been a bit more you know, think when anybody kills himself you you, you you think if you could, if you could just have got them through that night, would things have turned the corner, would they have got better you know mm. um, the, the, the realistic answer to that is oftentimes no no they wouldn't have you know and, and like I say, maybe if we got him into therapy in a bigger way where he could maybe have managed to unpack some of his problems and to to try and get past the, the, the death of our dad. Um, but I don't know 
I, what's the expression? I don't know how good a candidate for that kind of therapy Gary would have been, you know? Um, from what I've read his medical records, his interactions with the, the, the mental health nurse, they sort of suggest to me that he's, he's, he's not forthcoming with information and beyond the most basic sort of terms, you know? A lot of this mental health stuff it is about class and culture, isn't it? Yeah, it is, I think, hugely so. Um, part of the, if you will, part of the um, middle classification process that comes with going to university is a certain degree of, you know, um, whether it's analysis. So it's certainly uh, what going to university and getting a degree gives you is an ability to sort of research things at the most basic level, whether it's your headaches you're suffering from or whether it's, whatever but Gary never learned that sort of skill set you know you'd have to do all these things for him um and I, I think once you once you go to university you go off to work in something like music industry or in publishing or whatever and you certainly you move to London you're suddenly in an arena where things like you know therapists are you know is that that's something that you come across you know mm. Mm. whereas back in Ayrshire where my brother grew up you know, there's probably still a huge amount of stigma attached to it um, to go to see a psychiatrist. And there was just, as I say, somebody's leading quite a chaotic life and who's often stoned or on meds, who just the very basic things to try to get the number of notes I found in his file that Gary missed another appointment, Gary's missed this appointment, Gary failed to He would constantly miss appointments with these people, whether it was the doctor or the psychiatric nurse. And then a month or two later, obviously things would get really bad for him and he'd suddenly show up. I also have the suspicion sometimes this was just to get Valium. You know, mm. he suddenly want these appointments because he couldn't sleep and he was trying to get some kind of medication. Um, was there was there, was there was there resentment as well because you were living this different sort of life, and uh, you know was 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 that an issue between you both as well? I don't know. Um, I mean, did you? We never talked that much about what I. Did. I mean, funnily enough, after he killed himself, and my sister and I went to clear out his house. The three novels that I'd published at that point were on his bookcase beneath his TV, um, along with two framed photographs of my kids wow. at the time, which I had sent him along with a cheque that he would ask to borrow some money. And I'd never had an acknowledgement from him that he'd received the cheque or the, or the photos. You never know. Um, So, I mean, he, what was that going to lead me to remember? He, I mean, there were, just leading up to him dying, he'd sort of managed to engineer a situation where he was almost at war with the whole family because my sister had had her first kid at that point and Gary hadn't, it was like six months after Orla was born and Gary hadn't got in touch. He hadn't sent her a card or a note or a letter or a text even just to say congratulations, which I thought was terrible, you know, the way to behave your own sister just having the, the first kid. So it was, and Linda, Linda, sorry, my younger sister more than I, because um, Linda sort of worked in the caring professions, you know, she worked for a charity 
three years called Include Him in Scotland that helped um, kids who were thrown out of the parental homes and had nowhere to live. And Linda is a much more uh, caring, sort of organised soul than I am in many ways. And she did a lot for Gary. And it was largely a sort of thankless task, you know. Um, I sometimes wonder, looking back at now, was he sort of deliberately bumming bridges just to sort of be left in his own? Was that what he really wanted? Um, it's tough to say. Uh, what, 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 since, since it, it happened, hmm. what has been, how have you coped? I mean, is therapy something that you, that you did, that you did before this or that you've done since? No, um, I mean, I'm not sure how true this is, I'm sure a lot of writers say it, but, you know, um, what I do is a kind of form of therapy. I sort of mm. sit for long stretches every day, communing both with myself and with my dad. Um, and, you know, I wrote a novel called The Amateurs mm. that kind of worked through a lot of the feelings about my dad uh, via the medium of golf. Um <laughs> After he dies, and when you when you're a novelist and you do that, you know you get to go into the, and shut the door in the study and spend hours in the mental company of somebody like that. You get to sort of stare it down, if you will, a bit. And like I said, there was nothing really unsaid between me and my dad. I felt sad that he was gone and that he was just seventy. He was too young. I would have loved him to have a few more years, but there wasn't anything like the regret or pain Gary had. In terms of, to answer your question, when Gary died, um, a lot about his, about his suicide was totally explicable to me, you know, um, for all the reasons I just said, um, it was comprehensible. Uh, but it, it doesn't stop you rehashing these, um, could we have done things differently, better, could we have, could we headed this off? Could we have stopped it? And I think the kind of the peace that you get is that you realise that you're just going to have to coexist with those questions. That they will come at you from time to time and nag at you, and you're maybe never going to get a fully satisfactory answer to them. You know, and my, my sister's quite good in this too. My, I can't remember what we're talking about, but. One day she rang me up and she, she, she said, oh, you know, there's a, there's a few things we did. That my mum, my it's a slight digression here, but it will, it will come back to the main point. Um, we, I bought a much bigger house in Scotland a couple of years ago for my mum to live in because I've got a bunch of kids now, my sister has kids, and when we go back to visit my mum, there was only a small sort of three-bedroom council house. There just wasn't enough room. So we kind of bought a much bigger place three years ago for my mum. And good, fair play to my mum. She was in her 70s at that point and was game for this move to have more space. And she, she loves the new house. And um, But it was one of those things that Linda pointed out. She said, if Gary had still been alive, there's no way we could have done this. Because Gary would have objected for some reason. He'd have not wanted to sell my dad's old house. Or mm. Gary had a way in the family if he really wanted something, he's the one who would smash the place up and scream and cry until he got it. He yeah. would have made my mum's life so miserable about doing it that she wouldn't have done it. Or he would have insisted in me buying him out of his share of the yeah. old house if we were selling it. And, you know, fine, he'd have got that money and probably blown it in a few years and then would have moved back in with my mum. Mm. And then, you know, there's all sorts of ways that 
this kind of nice thing that we were able to do for mum would have come to grief mm. had Gary been around. And so my, we're talking about this, and my sister said, the thing that's unsayable in that world with a sibling and a trouble, a difficult sibling, you know, my brother often reminded me of um, Noel Gallagher's great quip about Liam being a man with a, a fork in a world of soup. <laughs> my brother was a bit like that too. Mm. And uh, I sort of, Linda said, oh, you know, in some ways, fuck, I'm glad he's dead. And you just, can't, that's unsayable. A lot of people mm. don't say that. That's something that Linda, my sister, and I could only say yeah. to each other. But I knew what she meant in that, and I don't know, you, you, you're you 30s, Sam? 40s. 40s. 46, yeah. I don't, know you, I don't know if you find this, but I've got friends now, as I, I'm now in my 50s, mm. friends who, as they get older, they kind of, they gradually move from being eccentric to, like, fucking insane. <laughs> People's behaviour uh, tends to get... <laughs> Especially if you friends yeah. know who are like single and don't have kids and yeah. who, who live in their own. These eccentricities really start to harden into actual madness. And I thought, <laughs> well, my brother was only 42 today. I'm like, Gary in his 50s or then Gary in his 60s. Uh, you know, it could have been a very grim picture of sort of deteriorating health and reasonableness and everything, a fight and an argument and a debate. You know, there are, there are ways that sometimes I think, God, you know, maybe we dodged a bullet, but you know, um, I'm very and it, it cost me, I'm very fortunate that I have a close relationship with my sister where yeah. we can say these things to each other. You know, to answer your question again, I think Linda and I serve that therapeutic function for each other quite a yeah. lot because I think the only other place somebody could have said something that savage and honest would have been within the confines of therapy that mm. you could have said it to a therapist without judgment. But, you know, Linda and I are able to share that stuff with each other. I was going to ask you as well, just lastly, like a theme that I think is really interesting in all your work is drugs, alcohol, excess. And, uh, you know, really interesting conflict in in men that I, you know, that I've experienced and, you know, I, I, I've led me into addiction stuff, is that conflict between facing all of the issues that we have to face and processing all the, all the shit that we have to process that you, that you've been speaking about over the last uh, half hour and, and that Gary mm. perhaps just never was able to and mm. run it and running away from it. And I think there's so many characters in your work who are sort of torn between facing shit and just w- running into the arms of kind of excess to sort mm-hmm. of bli- blind themselves from it or numb themselves from it. And that is a theme in so many men's lives, particularly as they kind of reach middle age. Yeah. Um, obviously, that, yeah. that seems something you're very interested in. How, how do you deal with that in your own life? You can write about it in, in such a powerful way that you make it, you make it almost fetishised sometimes. <laughs> but, but no, it's, it's true. I mean, I was still drinking. I was still drinking when I read, when um, Straight White Mail came out and I was like, some of the some of the things you're, you're reading about a guy who's an alcoholic and he really he's fucked he's a wreck, mm. but that but then the scenes in which he's kind of mixing himself cocktails or ordering himself like room service is <laughs> it's described with such gorgeous detail <laughs> that you find yourself reading it and you go out and you want to go out and do the same, you know. So it's Not- kind of complex. On one hand, you're reading a book about how the woes of alcoholism and addiction, how it ruins your life. 
But on the other hand, it actually is making it sound really nice at the same time. So I don't know. Is that is that a conflict that is in you in your I, life? Very much so. Um, and I think as I get older, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't describe it as a conflict. There's something that again I've sort of come to peace with. As I, as I, go. I, I love um, long stretches of sobriety. Mm. For instance, um, I used a lot on with work back at the tail end of last year, and I sort of stopped drinking around middle of November, and didn't drink again until a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that was like three months nearly. Mm. And I love those periods because, you know, all the cliches that you sleep so well and you're up bright as a button at like 6, 6.30 a.m. And, you know, and everything gets easier and you, you usually don't work. But as against that, I love nothing more than a, a long, boozy lunch with really good mates. Mm. So what I've come to do as I've got older is I'll generally um, live the quiet life of sobriety. And I don't, I don't go to things now that I do, I, I'm kind of done with going to award ceremonies and big parties and things. The only things I really like to do is to see a bunch of about, you know, maybe at the most 15, 20 really close friends who I don't see that often. And, you know, this will only happen a handful of times a year. And I'll cut myself the slack and know that I'm going to have a hangover for a day or two and not beat myself up about it. But that's kind of how I choose to live. I mean, I, a hematologist friend once explained to me that um, as you get into middle age, how badly the liver processes alcohol compared to, there's a real exponential drop off after the age of 45 wow. where um, your hangovers become much worse, you know? Mm. Mm. And this was, I, I got a sense of this when I, when I left the music business in my early thirties and started trying to write, I first got an intimation of this and I discovered I couldn't write with a hangover because when you're, especially when you're unpublished and what you're trying to do is like dream this whole world into being on the page, you have to bring a huge amount of self-confidence to that. And I found very quickly that I just couldn't do it with a hangover. Mm. So my drinking went from being insanely excessive in the sort of music industry years to quite minimal for a while when I was the early days and I was writing music from Big Pink and Kill Your Friend. Um, Did you ever write, have you ever written drunk or high? Uh, <laughs> my friend, the novelist Andrew Higgins, got a good expression for this. And, um, most novelists have begun short stories or books in what he calls a Chardonnay rush of, <laughs> you know, those first couple of glasses mm. of white wine. Um, but usually it's nothing you want to keep. <laughs> what I find that you, the only time that drink is really involved in the writing process for me is once you've got the sort of second draft lit, licked, once the sort of book is kind of structurally there, um, and there's just a few places you want to dig a little deeper, it's undoubtedly, and I'm not talking about getting paralytic, but a few glasses of wine, does help you get into some of the places you maybe can't quite access sober. Um, and then what you'll do is you'll you run with the ball a bit there. I'm talking maybe in the evening at around six, seven o'clock, getting to study for a couple of hours and have a few drinks and do that kind of work. Mm. Or maybe towards the end of finishing the book, I'll go away for four or five days where I can be in a hotel and have a few drinks at night and do that kind of work. And then the next day when you're sober, you'll edit, you tend to pay back a little because it will get, you know, your drunk things get a little excessive. Mm. But it definitely allows you access to the odd thing that's worth having, I think. But, I mean, I'm not talking Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver, used to write at night on cocaine and whiskey. And yeah. he would write like 20 pages a night off his nut. 
And he said, of those 20 pages, maybe two would be gold and the rest would have to go in the bin. And that ratio, that ratio can work when you're 27, 28. It doesn't work when you're, you know, 47, 48. And yeah. certainly not when you've got kids in the go. Yeah, so, yeah. You you can see why people do it though, because like you say, when you're unpublished, you need a huge amount of confidence. And sometimes the only way you can tap into that confidence, if you're if you're young and unpublished, is is using drink or drugs or whatever to to create it. I can see that too. It wound up being the opposite for me because I realised that a lot of it in the cold light of day wasn't very good, right. and that I'd rather come at the desk kind of in the best shape I could in the yeah. morning. Um, but yeah, a, a lot. Of, you know, it's not. I mean, Bruce Robinson, who wrote um, with Neil and I, mm. he 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 said famously in his memoir, he couldn't, he cannot write sober. Wow. You just cannot do it. And he would find himself when he was on a deadline for a movie, he'd, he'd have to get into his office and drink a bottle of red wine at like 11 a.m., not particularly wanting to sometimes, but it just he had to do it to get to that place where he could honestly access his emotions. You're th- thankful I've never been, you know, yeah. never been down that road. Bad but- habit. Um, okay, here's my last thing then, and then I'll let you go. Just in terms of male friendship, which is another big theme across all of your work, how how is the way in which you kind of manage your your friendships with with the men in your life, like the closest your closest male friends? How has that been influenced or shaped since you lost Gary? Has that informed the way you now speak with your friends? Um, I've always been fortunate since my teenage years. You know, when I grew up in Irvine, you know, my brother was kind of friends with the the Neds, you know, the kind of yeah. casuals. The kind of, I always was with a sort of quite tight group of like outsiders. We're all in bands. We're all into music. Some of us wrote fanzines. Mm. And we were all, we're a very close tactile group who never had any problems hugging and kissing and telling each other we loved each other, which is probably quite unusual in the West Coast of Scotland in the 1980s, I'm talking about now. And these are guys who I still see uh, all the time. You know, when I'm home, we'll go out in Glasgow or we'll have parties down in Ayrshire where we come from once or twice. You know, I, I still have I still have a group of about, you know, 10 friends that I grew up with. And all, all the friends have acquired subsequent life. You know, And you'll know this yourself, Sam, as you get older, you know, in your 20s, early 30s, before you have kids, you have a pretty huge friendship group because you're out all the time. And then as you get older and you have children, that tends to get paired away to just the essentials. So now I have a group of friends from the 90s and uh, 90s that I still have close to me today. We're all pretty, you know, um, honest, affectionate people, you know? And people who check in on each other, if you haven't heard from somebody for a while, you, you drop them a line. Because that's what happens in your 40s, isn't it? You, you have children and you all know, some of us in London, some of us out in the home county, some of us are down in Somerset, some of yeah. you know, you don't see each other so often. Mm. And especially with the pandemic the last couple of years, you know. Mm. Um, so I think some of us make it. Well, we have what a lot of people have now, I suppose. We have the um, WhatsApps, various WhatsApp groups. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, um, yeah. Are devoted to sort of gossip and slander and libel. <laughs> um, but no, I'm I'm very fortunate. I've got a, I've got quite a um, intimate, but you know, a open group of male friends that are you know pretty honest with each other. Well, John, listen, it's such a privilege to uh, speak with you and and for you to be sort of so so open 
about you know stuff that is um had such a big impact on you in your life so i appreciate that your honesty and openness and your time of course and you know, thank, um, you. thank you for having me on so we'll we'll really look forward to the book which hopefully will be next year yeah i think you're probably looking at um next spring summer 2023 so, so that will come before whatever your next novel is then sadly yeah i mean I, I, i've got the next novel all out and I'm dying to start it, but um, I kind of need to get this memoir off the desk. It's been three years nearly. And in the meantime, movies, there's there's lots of movies you're writing that, that we can see, right? Yeah, the movie, the current movie called The Trip is up on Netflix right now. stars Numi Rapace. Yeah. And Axel Hensel, um, who's in The Martian. Um, yeah. And, I, yeah, I've got a new movie that... Um, all been well start shooting in October this year. Uh, well, look, always really excited to see any of your new work coming out, mate. And oh, again, thank you, th- th- thanks for your time. Uh, John Niven, cheers. Well, thanks for having me on. There you go, John Niven, a great writer and a great bloke too. I really appreciated his honesty and his openness. What a moving story. I'll really look forward to reading his book next year when it comes out and If you're unfamiliar with his novels, then I really can't recommend them highly enough. Go and get stuck into a lot of them is my advice. Thanks for listening as always, gang. If you want to subscribe to the newsletter, you can do at samdelaney.substack.com and check me out on Instagram at The Reset Sam. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.